we are told to change the world. And whether you are young, uh, you hear this in school, or you are old and you've heard this maybe for many years in your life, we are told to change the world. We are told your life matters. You can change the world, and that's great. But sometimes that really stresses people out. I know that as a pastor, I talk to people all the time that have been told over and over again, you, out of all these 8 billion people, you can change the world. And then there's kind of this this stress of, am I doing what I'm supposed to do then? And can I, am I living the right way? And what if I miss it? And what if I don't do the things I'm supposed to do to change the world? And, and there can be this stress about that. And, and the reality is we are one person. And if we're told, change the world, you can change the world. Maybe we do. If you, you know, think about like the butterfly effect, if you know what that is, that a single flap of a butterfly's wing can you know, change the currents of the wind and et cetera, et cetera, and then change history. There's kind of a whole philosophy based on that. So maybe we can change the world, but in reality, most of us aren't going to be famous. Most of us aren't going to be on the top 10 people that have changed the world. There's a, a, a Christian school that I know of that has a scholarship. I think it was a full ride scholarship, and it was for world changers. That was the name of the scholarships, for world changers, right? So that goes to like a few people, which what are they saying by that? The person that comes home and says, hey, did you get, are you a world? No, they said, I'm a, maybe a home changer. Maybe I can change my home. I got the $5 scholarship. You know, I'm not, I'm not the world changer. But even they are, even a school that is saying, you can change the world, is saying, well, not really all of you. Only you guys are going to change the world. Now, we're told change the world, but maybe not. We want our life to matter, but we're not sure. We're told to make every day count. Right? We're told to make every day count, to make a difference. Sometimes we, you know, yesterday was September 11th as we remember the national tragedy. And I remember when that was happening, that one of the big things, and this happens all, all the time when there's national tragedies or things like that, that people say, hey, you need to really make every day count. Focus on those that you love. Go home, hug your kids, hug your wife, hug your husband. I mean, those kinds of things where it's live every day, make every day count because this could be your last. And we're told to do that, right? to make every day count, and yet we have a job. We're kind of a cog in a wheel in our job. We live our life. Many of you are kind of new moms, and a lot of times all life can feel like at that time is bottles, butts, and bedtime, right? Which could also be like a sleazy club slogan, but you're, you're told to just, you're told, it's just kind of you go through, you go through life, and you're, it's just like, man, I'm supposed to change the world. I'm supposed to make every day count. But I've also just got a routine of life. I've also just got to live my life and do my things and pay my bills and catch up on my Netflix shows. And it's just, there's a routine that happens, right? And we want our life to matter. We're told that we are very valuable. We're told that we have worth and value and all of that. And we're told you are special and you are unique, which is hard to believe when we're one little snapshot out of 8 billion people and we look at other people's lives even though we're supposed to believe that we are significant and we matter but we look at other people's lives and their life seems to matter a little more sometimes. We see their, maybe their job is better and maybe their family's better and maybe their situation in life is a little bit better. We compare ourselves and kind of battle through a lot of that and oftentimes need kind of self-esteem boosts to, to help us believe that we're special, that we are one of a kind, even though we're one of eight billion. It's hard. We want our life to matter. We want it to matter, but we're often not sure that it 
does. And, and maybe you don't think about that question at all. That's why I kind of asked in the beginning, let, let's just kind of be reflective for a moment. Maybe you, maybe you don't really think about that. I don't think most of us kind of just go through life with that question at the forefront. But listen, if we don't think about it at all, if we just kind of live life and we have fun times and we have boring times and we have hard times, but if we just kind of go through life and we don't think about, does my life matter? Probably, without even knowing it, we're operating as if it doesn't matter. Because if it's not a conscious awareness that our life matters and our choices matter and we have a purpose and there is, there is something to our life, if we don't live consciously with that, whether we know it or not, we are living as if it doesn't matter. So we are one out of almost eight billion. Do I matter? Do you matter? Does our life matter? If, if it does and when you've had moments where you believe that there is purpose, when you've had moments that you believe there's meaning, when you've had those moments, what happens is we have focus. What happens is even the disconnected parts of our life that feel routine, job and family and fun and, and this thing and this responsibility, they, they actually can fit together and we have a unified vision for how it all connects. If we believe and live as if our lives matter, then there's hope. Even when we're going through things that are difficult, there is joy, there is a vision, there's endurance that happens because when things are difficult, we still say, yeah, but I know that this matters and I know that my life matters and this might be difficult right now, but I know that it matters. So when we live with that, it changes a lot of things. And, and I know there's different people in this room and different people online. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. And sometimes the longer that you are a Christian, the, the easier it is to lose the perspective on this because we've been living life and we've been doing life and we've been doing all these things and, and especially not even just how long you've been a Christian, but the older you get in life, you can look back and say, has it mattered? Has it made any difference? Has it counted? Will I be remembered? Sometimes people wonder. And sometimes, maybe those of you that it's not that you've been a Christian for a long time or getting older in years, but for those of us that are younger and maybe just starting life out or, or feel kind of life is exciting and the world is your oyster and everything's ahead of you and everything's just kind of beginning, you need to know that your life matters and what that means and what that looks like. Otherwise, the beginning of starting things out will be not lived with purpose and meaning, and you'll have to go backwards to, to fix things. Sometimes, maybe some of you are suffering, feeling hopeless in life, even on the end of suicidal in life. And we've had people that have been here on a Sunday and told me those thoughts. So I don't say that as some crazy extreme. That might be where you are and need to know, does my life, does it matter? So I don't know where exactly you come into this question, whether it's that you've been living life a long time, whether you're kind of just starting out and, or maybe just need a reminder. I don't know where it is, but this series that we start today, we're going to be looking at this question. We're going to be looking at this idea and looking at several different components of how and why and what it means that our life matters. But, but there's a foundational aspect that if we don't have all the other pieces, 
won't really connect. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about one of the cores that, that really lays the foundation for all other aspects of thinking about how our life matters. Everything else builds from here. And so here's the simple, simple, although profound idea as we begin this series. Your life matters to God. Your life matters to God. That's the simple idea that I want us to explore today. That if we grasp all the other things that we will talk about in this series come from here, and if we grasp that, we will begin to live with and understand what it looks like to live a life that deeply matters and has our intended purpose. So Jesus is going to tell two little stories that help us begin to understand this. And really, these are two stories that are connected. To, there's, a, there's three stories that Jesus tells, the final being the climax, which is the prodigal son. You probably are familiar or at least have heard that idea or that story. And, and I preached that um, several months back. And these two maybe are lesser known because they're not really the climax of the three that Jesus puts together. And yet, looking at them by themselves, can help us see some unique things that we will look at today. So let me read these verses to us. All the tax collectors and sinners, and if you're unfamiliar, tax collectors were kind of viewed as the worst of the worst because they had collaborated with the enemy. The Jewish people were in occupation by Rome. This would be um, maybe back in the 40s if there was a Jewish person that was collaborating with the Nazis. It was similar to that. So they were hated and they were sinful and they had betrayed their people. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes, those are the religious leaders, were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until... He finds it. And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin that I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Here's the first question I want us to explore together. Why is it difficult to believe that we matter to God. Why is it difficult to believe that? And, and when I say, why is it difficult to believe that we matter to God, you could get rid of the God part and just say, why is it difficult to believe that we matter? But really, it's connected to not believing that we matter to God. Why is that difficult? And at times, I think we struggle to believe this because we see ourselves 
and know things about ourselves. We see our sin. The Pharisees were complaining because they saw that the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus, and in their minds, they are thinking, doesn't Jesus know who these people are? They're sinful. They're the wrong people. They have a low status in society. So why is he treating them as if they matter? Why is he giving them access? Why is he giving them love? Why is he giving them relationship? Why is he treating them like they matter? Now, we might not have scribes and Pharisees that are saying this about us, but we have kind of an internal scribe and Pharisee that knows about our sin and knows about our status. We know what we have done. You know what you have done in life, whether that's today or just kind of in the past. You know what you have done and who you are. And so at times, because we see ourselves, we can think, do I, do I really matter to God? I know the things I've done. I know the ways I've sinned. I know how I have not been who God has called me to be. So do I matter to God? Or maybe it's not our sin, but we see ourselves just our status Maybe Mother Teresa mattered to God. Maybe Pope Francis matters to God. Maybe kind of whoever your favorite pastor, author, kind of Christian celebrity person, or maybe your grandma, if she's really holy. I mean, just we, we kind of have these saint figures in our mind, and we might say, I know they matter to God. I know God listens to their prayers. I know they have a close relationship with God, but do I? I mean, I'm just little old me. Do I matter to God? Do I matter to God? We might just know our status and know that we're really not that big of a deal. We're just working our job and live a busy life and, and are just a regular old person. Do I matter to God? We, we struggle to believe this because oftentimes we see ourselves. We know that either we're sinful or we're of lower status when you kind of look at the holiness marks and we just kind of don't really think that we are anything all that important, which means sometimes we say, well, well, then why even try to live as if life does matter? Why try to make my life count or live with some difference? Or why even sometimes we might think try to grow and change? And sometimes all of those thoughts can come into our mind. Even if we don't say it, we can live with an understanding or a feeling that we're not really all that essential. That's one of the reasons that it's difficult to believe that we matter to God because we look at ourselves and see ourselves. But, but secondly, it's not just that we see ourselves, it's that we don't see God. If you think about the, the sheep getting lost, how would the sheep get lost? I spent a while this week looking at sheep blogs. That is a thing. Um, and it's very interesting. I was, there's a lot of stuff on sheep. But it talks about how sheep wander all the time. And sheep get lost all the time. So that's a real thing. Check the sheep blogs if you don't believe me, right? Fact check me. They're, but they get lost all the time. And there's different reasons for that. There's a variety of reasons that sheep get lost. But one of the reasons... And one of the, the ways that we can see from the rest of the teaching of the Bible as it talks about sheep is because 
we are looking for greener pastures. We're looking for other things. We have, if you think about the, the story, there's the sheep with the other 99. And they're there with the shepherd and they're being cared for by the shepherd and the shepherd has them all together and there's certain things that he's doing with them and, and they leave. We often leave to go find something better, to go find something else, to find this is not fulfilling us in the way that we want it to or maybe the way it once did. And so we go to find greener pastures. We, we use that language sometimes, not even about uh, sheep, but the grass is always greener on the other side, right? And that is one of the reasons that we leave in really what that means is we're not seeing God rightly. See, it, it can be difficult to believe that we matter to God because we see ourselves, but it can also be difficult to believe that we matter to God because we don't see God rightly. Instead, we look for other things and look at other things. And we still want a life that feels meaningful and we still want a life that feels joyful and purposeful. And so sometimes we wander, because we're not looking at God, we wander away from him and say, where can I find that? Maybe I can find that in my career. Maybe I can find that in my family. Maybe I can find it in this relationship. Maybe I can find it in just having as much fun as I can. Maybe I can find that in Denver. Maybe some of you moved here for that. Maybe I can find that in the mountains. Maybe I can find that. There's all sorts of ways that we don't see God and who he really is. And so we begin to look for fulfillment, joy, meaning, identity in other things. It's difficult to believe that we matter to God. There's a lot of different reasons for that. But if you, if you think about your life, do you live? No one's going no to know the answer to this, right? But just kind of reflect on this. Do you live with a deep sense that you matter to God? Do you live with a deep sense that you matter to God? Or is that hard? If it's hard, it might be because you see yourself, that inner scribe, inner Pharisee. Or it might be because you don't really see God. And you're looking for it in other things and have actually ignored God. And what happens then is we miss the closeness that God wants us to experience. We miss the purpose that God wants us to experience. We miss the fountain of all of the other ways that we experience meaning and value and purpose in life if we miss this. So here's the question then. How do we know that we matter to God? How do we know? If it's difficult to believe that, how can you and I know? How can we root ourselves more deeply in the truth that you matter to God? How do we know? This story gives several different aspects that, that help us with that, that Jesus is wanting to communicate to those listening. The first is this. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't, or in the story, the shepherd or the woman, doesn't ignore the fact that we go astray. He doesn't ignore the fact that we go astray. If you look at this, Jesus says, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave? 
And Jesus is kind of saying this as an obvious statement, saying, who wouldn't do this? Which is saying there's an internal motivation. What man among you doesn't go leave? Who doesn't care about this? Who wouldn't feel something inside of themselves and then do something about it? Jesus is saying that he cares. So when he sees us wandering or leaving, or when the shepherd saw the sheep leaving, there's an internal feeling of, I care about that. I care that people are leaving. I care that people are wandering. I care that people are not experiencing that their life matters to me. I care about that. There's an internal emotion. We were at an amusement park over the summer, and I lost my sunglasses. Shrugged my shoulders, moved on. But if we were at the amusement park and I lost a kid, I'd shrug my shoulders and move on. <laughs> like, all right. I, I, I would not just say, well, I'll go get another kid. I'm sure Amazon has those. I, I, would, I, would, I would care, right? I would feel something because I lost something that mattered to me. So even in these stories, the shepherd and the woman doesn't say, well, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I'll get another one. I can get another sheep. 99 seems like a pretty good number, actually. He says, I care that this is missing. I care that this is gone. Listen, if you've ever seen someone in your life that you've seen begin to wander away from God, many of us have had that experience. We've seen someone that's wandered away in some aspect of their life. That might have been a child. That might have been a friend. That, that might be happening right now, or that might be kind of a long time ago. But you care about that because you say, I don't want them to miss out on what God has for them. I don't want them to find, I, I don't want them to rather lose what God intends for them. I don't want them to experience the pain. I, I don't want that for them. And whatever feeling you have felt of that, God feels a thousand times more, perfectly, infinitely. He cares when we wander away. God sees our life. He sees wherever it is that we're wandering. If you're not a Christian, he sees that. If you are a Christian, but there's aspects in our life where we are wandering or we are ignoring or we are just having a bunch of fun but missing him, he cares. That's the first thing. The very first way that we just know that we matter to God is that he, you see there's an internal motivation that he says, who wouldn't do this? What man among you wouldn't, if it belonged to him, go after it? He cares. That's the first thing. But the second thing is not just that he cares, but he acts. He does something. If you think about kind of a spectrum of action that we take, um, maybe think about a missing child as an example. And if you, this would probably be very rare, but if you didn't like somebody, you would be like, great, I'm happy about that. But then there's kind of things that we hear about on the news, and those are tragedies, right? And you might care about that. If I showed you the, the statistics of how many missing children there are, you, you would go, that's awful. But that's probably it, right? There'd be, a, there'd be a, an emotion you have of care, but probably very little action. But then if it gets closer to home, maybe it's an acquaintance, that someone is missing. I remember this happened to someone that I knew growing up. And then on Facebook, it was, this person is missing. 
And, or sometimes maybe it's just in the local community here in Arvada or Denver. You see something pop up. There's an Amber Alert. Can you share this Facebook post? So you care a little bit more because it's a little closer to home, and you might take a little bit of action, right? You're probably not going to go out looking and with your flashlight and searching all over the place, but if you've kind of, you, might share, you might take a little bit of action. You might share a Facebook post or keep your eyes open a little bit. And then, as that moves more personal, if it was your child or if it was your nephew or your niece, then you turn into Liam Neeson, right? And you, you say, I've got a specific set of skills, right? And you go crazy. Like if, if your child is missing, you don't, you don't stop. You don't stop. You, you look aggressively. You go after. So the more, here's the point, the more personal something is, the more close something is, the more it is linked to the action that you take, right? And Jesus does not just care. He takes action. The more that we care, the more that we're moved to act, the more that we do, the more that we invest, the more time that we spend. And Jesus in this parable says that the shepherd goes after the lost one until he finds it. That's a grit, right? That's a determination to say, I'm going to go after the lost one until I find it. Or the woman, it gives all these actions that she does. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully until she finds it. Grit. Again, there is this perseverance, this determination. It's, it's an internal feeling of I care, but because of the closeness, because of how much it matters, there is a dogged determination that doesn't stop. Now, this is a parable, but we know what Jesus has done in order to go after us. We know the action that he has done to go after us, that God himself became man, that he left heaven and came into earth. That is taking some action, that he went to the cross to seek us and find us. Jesus said that his mission statement was, I have come to seek and to save the lost, people wandering away from me. So he has left heaven to come to earth and he has taken on the form of a human and he has gone to the cross that he lived this life to seek us. He didn't just light a lamp and, and sweep a house. He didn't just wander through fields to find a sheep. But he did everything to come after us. That he went to the point of death to come after us. That he did all of it to seek us. And listen, the, the Holy Spirit is still doing that work. It's not that just Jesus coming to this earth was God's seeking and now he's done. The Holy Spirit is still doing God's active work of seeking us right now. Like there's things in your life where God is seeking you, God is pursuing you, any area of our life, if you belong to Jesus, any area in your life where you are wandering away from him, he never sits idly by. The Holy Spirit pursues us, seeks us, lights the lamp, sweeps, does everything until he finds us. And there's a variety of ways that that happens. You might, you might have shown up here today and said, I don't even know why I'm here. I do. 
You might have come online and you say, I don't even know how I found this stupid website. Why am I here? I've got things to do. I know why you're here. The Holy Spirit is seeking you. The Holy Spirit is drawing you. You might have a conversation with a friend and you think, wow, that's a crazy coincidence. I don't know how they said that. I don't. The Holy Spirit is seeking you. You might feel some pain and discontent in your life. And that might just be God making your life hard so that you come back to him. See, God can use all sorts of things in our life to pursue us and seek us. He hasn't changed. We know that he does this. We know he still does this. The way he does it, you're not going to see a shepherd walk up to you and throw you around their their shoulders. You would call 911, right? You're not going to see an old woman with a broom and and say, hi, God sent me, right? Maybe if your house is messy, you would receive that as like, thank you, Lord, right? You're not going to see that happen. But But God is still seeking. And he does that through convicting you. You feel guilt, you feel shame about things that you're doing, and you try to push that down. Say, I shouldn't feel guilty, guilt is bad. And The Holy Spirit might be convicting you. You have all sorts of areas in your life that are feeling unfulfilled. God may be letting things crumble so that you come back to him. Sometimes those coincidences, all of that stuff. Listen, the Holy Spirit is God seeking you. All the time. He has not stopped this work. And he will seek you until he finds you. So that's the second thing. How we know in this story. Third, it's not just that he goes after the sheep. But he restores them to their rightful place of where he wants them. And and we see this in where Jesus, the, the context of why he tells the parable to begin with, is that, They're accusing him, rightfully, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. See, he has taken them from being outcast. He's taken them from being estranged. He's taking them from being away from God to then, at his table, welcoming them. Doesn't just mean Jesus was going around saying hi to people. Wow, look, he's welcoming sinners. He just waves to everybody. It's that he was bringing them into his life. He was, and to eat with someone just like today is a sign of relationship. And especially in that culture was really a sign of you, you and me are together. Jesus was bringing them from this outcast place to his table. He restored them from where they had gone away. So we know that we matter to God, not just because he feels something, not just because he acts, but because of what his intention is. So what's God's goal for you? What is it that God wants to do for you? What is it? Why is he seeking you? Why does he even now seek you? What's the reason? What's the point? And the point is he wants something better for you. He wants you to be able to experience fellowship and communion with him. He doesn't want you over here getting stuck in the the thorn bushes or eating the poisonous mushrooms like a sheep. He, He doesn't want you living under a dusty couch. He wants you eating with him. He wants you enjoying life with him and all that it means to know and enjoy God. That is what he's after. 
He wants to give you fulfillment. He wants to give you forgiveness. He wants to give you himself. And so we know that we matter to God, not just because of how he feels or the action he takes, but because of what his intention is, which is to bring us into life with him. And then here's the final piece of how we know we matter to God. And I I love this. And really, in some ways, this is the point of all three of the parables, including the prodigal son, but but these two, we, we see it here. Many of us know that God loves us. One of the most popular verses in the Bible is, for God so loved the world, right? And, and another one is, God is love. Many of us know that. Many of us know that God loves us. Many of us know that God has saved us. It's common to refer to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, which is we know he loves us. We know he has saved us. We know that there's certain things that he does, but how does God feel about you right now? How does God feel about you right now? That is a question that really is key to everything. I remember I asked a seminary student once, So those that are studying the Bible and should know much about God and what the Bible teaches. And he said to me, I know God loves me. I know he loves me. But I'm not sure how he feels about me. And what this passage teaches us, I love. Because it doesn't just tell us what he does, but it tells us how he feels. And and here's the word. He joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders. Rejoice with me. There's more joy in heaven. Rejoice with me. There's joy in the presence of God's angels. Over and over and over again. And if I were to go into the prodigal son, same word would pop up as well. Joy, joy, joy. Over and over and over again. And and that word for joy is really, it's a state of being. It's a state, meaning it's not just kind of this flash in a moment, but it's a state. It's it's an ongoing, constant reality. Joy. Rejoicing. When do you feel that? When do you feel joy? When do you feel that state of happiness and bliss and contentment and delight When do you feel that? Sometimes I get it when I eat a delicious cinnamon roll. I'm not joking. You eat a warm, oozy cinnamon roll, not a dry. So many of these like cool bakeries, which I love, I go to, but it's like dry. Cinnabon, I mean, there's a reason it's all over the world, right? There's a reason you can go to Iran and there's a Cinnabon, you know? I don't know if that's true, but probably, you know? It's like there's a McDonald's, a Cinnabon, and it's just warm, gooey, melts in your mouth like cotton candy, right? And sometimes when we get a cinnamon roll like that with our kids and you eat that thing and we'll just, I'll just, wait, don't, no one say anything. Just, mm. you just feel that state of joy, right? I don't know if that's, maybe you're like, that's weird, I'm healthy, I feel that way about salads. Okay, great. <laughs> or maybe it's climbing a mountain. You get to the, you get to, whenever you get to that point of the mountain, 
whether it's half a mile if you're kind of weak or it's, it's a 14er, which I have not done yet, whatever it is, but you get to that point when you, the view opens up, maybe then you feel that just state of joy. Maybe it's with someone that you haven't seen in a long time and you're laughing and I love sitting around the fire with friends and laughing and maybe you just feel that state of joy. What, I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's when you had your first kid. Probably not your second kid. I'm a middle child, so, you know, maybe your second kid. But you, you feel that state of just bliss and joy. God takes joy in you. That feels different than God loves you. Now, I'm not saying God loves you isn't powerful. That, that's true. That's beautiful. I've done whole sermon series on God loves you. But, but I, I, feel, I mean, I, I'm a pastor. I've studied these things for a long time. And this week, as I was just, it, it was even hard to say the phrase, God enjoys me. Like, it's easy to say God loves me, but there's something different about saying God enjoys me. Doesn't that feel different? Maybe you're not even sure if that's true. Maybe you're not even sure if, if you can believe that. Maybe you're not even sure how to, how to emotionally get there and like what that even means. But, but think about joy. That's why I'm trying to point you to cinnamon rolls and mountains and, and God enjoys you. I mean, over, I showed you over and over and over and over again, it's repeated for emphasis so that we get the point. God enjoys you. God delights in you. you do you think that I love cinnamon rolls and enjoy them more than God enjoys you? Do you think that, that you enjoy your kid more than God enjoys you? Do you think that you enjoy more the, the view that you have or whatever more than God enjoys you? God delights in you. It's not just what he does. There's an emotional experience. We have an emotional God that says, I enjoy you. Listen, here's, here's the point, by the way. The point here is you. That's the point of the one. God is the savior of the world. God loves the world. God is big enough for the world. And we talk a lot of times here about that it's not just you and Jesus and God is building a community and God is building a family. All of that is true and so important for our American individualistic mindset. But the point of saying the one is to say God is big enough to save the world and to save you. God is big enough to love the world and to love you. God is big enough God is big enough to say, I enjoy you, and I enjoy you, and I enjoy you. One in eight billion. And yet, that little yellow bald man, God says, I enjoy you. <clears throat> God doesn't just see stats. He sees you. you. Listen, you are not just a see. Right now, I see Sometimes I, I, I can see like individuals, but I see you like this. God sees you. You're not a stat. You're not a, a, a face. 
in just kind of a, a sea of faces. God sees you and says, I enjoy you. How much does he enjoy us? Whenever you experience joy, you want to share that joy, right? Whenever you experience joy, the greater that joy is, the more you want to share it. So if there's something that was funny on, on YouTube, you know, you're watching the crate challenge on TikTok, and you're like, this is funny. I got to show this to you. It brought you a little bit of sadistic, albeit, but it brought you a little bit of joy. If you don't know what the crate challenge is, look it up, and then you'll be sharing it with other people. But you, you, you get a little bit of joy, and so you want to share that with other people, right? Or even with food. You eat a great meal, and you want other people, oh, you got to try this, taste this. You want to share your joy that you feel. Or some of you are getting married or having a baby, and you send out an announcement, and you say, I feel joy and so I want you to feel joy with me whenever you go to your fridge, right? I want my announcement on your fridge. So think of my marriage when you're getting your milk for cereal because I want you to feel the joy with me, right? But when do you throw a party? You throw a party when you really want to share your joy, right? You throw a party, maybe you graduated high school or college, and, and you really want to bring other people in to share your joy. Or at a wedding, you really, you, most people, some people get married just by themselves, but most people want to throw a party to say, we have joy, we want to bring you all into it and have a party. People have baby showers and people have bridal showers and all of that idea is, I have this joy and I have so much joy that it's overflowing that I can't have it just with me. And I can't even just say, hey, look at this clip. I, I've, got to, I've actually got to have a celebration. There's so much joy. I have so much joy that we've got to have streamers and decorations and tablecloths and napkins. And I've got so much joy. Like no one's ever been that excited about a YouTube clip. Like I've got napkins for the clip. You're like What? You feel so much joy that you have a party. That's what happens here. It says that he invites all the neighbors and friends and that the woman invites all the neighbors and friends and, it's, and then it connects that into heaven and says that the angels, and there's a It's a Wonderful Life, um, says uh, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, right? And every time a sinner turns from their sin, the angels turn up. That's my, that's my, uh, that's my little phrase. That when, when, they, when, when a sinner changes, the angels party. They celebrate. And God is saying this, I have joy in you. But it's not just, ah, I, really, I really like you. It's not even that. It's, I have so much joy, I can't contain it. I've got to have a party. Whatever party you've thrown, guaranteed, is nothing compared to a heavenly party that God has for people coming into his family. To know that we matter to God is the core of everything. Now, it's difficult at times, but he gives us these parables and he gives all of this to just kind of build the evidence. Listen, he wants you to know it. He wants you to know it and live with it. He, that's a gift to know that I matter to God. He wants to give it to you. 
Last question is, why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know that we matter to God? This might all sound good, but why is it essential? We're going to explore this throughout the series, but three quick things of how it really matters. First of all, it changes how we relate to him. Maybe you can even begin to feel some of that right now. But he says this, which is, he says that all of this over one sinner who repents, which is that we are changing the way that we relate to him. See, to know all of this about God, to know that he cares, that he seeks, that he restores, that he enjoys, to know all of that changes how we relate to him. See, repentance is that we are going this way and we turn this way. So we're finding fulfillment and satisfaction over here. Instead, we find it in God. We're living for ourselves and doing what we want. And instead, we now submit to God and want his voice in our life. That we're figuring out our own identity and instead we receive it from him. That we're trying to save ourselves, but instead we are saved by him. However you want to look at it, repentance is this change. And when we know that our life matters to God, it changes how we relate to him. Because if you know that you have a God that feels that way about you, that has done all that for you, that has gone to the ends of the earth to pursue you, if, if you know the emotional, the physical, the lived action that he even takes now through the Holy Spirit, if you know that, you want to listen to him. You want to be with him. Someone that enjoys you that much, you want to be with them. You want to be around them. You, you trust them. Someone that would go to that, those lengths. You say, okay, I, I, I trust you then if you would do this for me. It changes how we relate to him. Which means if you're not a Christian, that call initially is to repent. To turn from this to him. And if we are Christians, our ongoing life is constant repentance because we continue to do this. We continue to go this way and need to be called back. So it changes how we relate to him, but it also changes how we relate to other people, which is how the whole parable gets set up. The Pharisees and the scribes are complaining, so he told them this parable. There was something broken in the way they were relating to other people that they didn't get. And so he gives this parable, you see, because if you know that God feels this way and has done these things for people wandering away from him, if you know that God thoroughly went to the ends of the earth and enjoys whatever person is in front of you, how can we treat people as insignificant? How can we disrespect people? I mean, what if we lived with God enjoys my spouse to the ends of the earth and has done everything for them? Wouldn't that change our tone? Wouldn't that change our patience? If we believe that about our kids, if we believe that about customer service, if we believe that about people that disagree with us on certain things, if we believe that about those that are sinners and tax collectors, if we believe that God did everything for this person, God would go to the ends of the earth for this person, God enjoys this person, that has to change how we respond to people. The more that we get that for us, we go, but it's not just me. I am one of eight billion people. And he does have this heart towards them. 
he does want this for them. So how could I ever be in opposition or in hostility? I'm not saying that's easy, but I, I can tell you that this week I've been trying to pray about that and remind myself God enjoys this person. God pursues this person. God cares and trying to remember. It's not just for me. I've got to experience it, but then I've got to relate to others that way. And it changes not just how we relate to those close to us, but changes how we relate to, as I mentioned briefly, but those on the outside of the faith. Instead of complaining about all those that are not Christians and all the things they're doing, what if we had Jesus' heart? What if instead of complaining, we joined him in his heart? That's part of what this parable is inviting us to do. We want to matter in our life. You and I want to matter. And oftentimes we don't live with the reality that we matter to God. But if we begin to see that, if we begin to take that in, that, that we matter to God, everything else builds from there. We're going to take communion in a moment. Hopefully you got a little cup on the way in. Communion is something Christians do as we remember. We remember the spiritual truth that these parables are pointing to. What it says about Jesus in the book of Hebrews, I love. It says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Which means Jesus did the worst imaginable. He had his body broken. He has his blood shed. That's what we remember in communion. That he had this physical awful pain and torment and spiritual separation even in that moment from God. And why did he do it? He did it for the joy set before him. Which was us. It was to bring us into his family. He said, I was willing to endure anything. I'm willing to endure everything to get you, to enjoy you. We want our life to matter. We have a God who says, I need you to know you matter to me. As you take communion, I want you to pray a couple things. I want you to pray, God, I want you just to, maybe you just need to sit with this. Maybe this is the only thing that you should pray. I want you to pray, God, make, make your joy that you have for me. Make your enjoyment of me. Make your delight of me. Make that real to me. Just ask him to give you that gift even today. So make that real to me. And then pray, give me your heart for other people. Give me, let me share in your heart towards those next to me and towards those that don't know you. Give me your heart. So take some time, take communion, thank God for all the beautiful truth that we saw and ask him to do these things in your life. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you, Jesus, did everything. Did everything to pursue us. Not just a, sheep, a shepherd going after a sheep or a woman going after a coin, but you came to this earth. You died a brutal death that we should die. You lived the life that we should have lived. And you restore us to God. You restore us to our Father. 
And so I pray, Lord, even now as people take communion and as we sing these songs, let your truth of your delight and your joy and your love and your heart be made real to us and may we share in it. In your name, Jesus.